All right, so here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to start going through, when I'm teaching, we're going to start going through the book of Genesis. And obviously we're going to start at the beginning. I wish I, w- I could give you about a 20-minute introduction on the background of the book, but I have too much stuff to get through today, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to have to do that next time when we get into chapter 2. I do want to give you a couple of different um, introductory notes. Number one, this is what I want to get to before we even start reading this. Number one, I want you to realize this. Every single religion on earth, every religion on earth, every religion is built on a creation story. And the reason is because every religion has to account for how we got here. How did we get where we are today? How did all of this come into being? And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about Christianity or Islam or Judaism or atheism, secularism, humanism. I don't care whether a person says they're religious or not. They are. Every person has a religion. R.C. Sproul says it this way. Every man's a theologian. That's true. Every man's a philosopher. That's also true. It's just that a lot of people aren't good theologians and they're not consistent philosophers. They haven't sat down to realize or to think about, it's kind of strange to say it in these terms, but they haven't sat down to think about the way that they think. It's called metacognition, right? They haven't thought about their thoughts. But the truth is most people hold thoughts that are diametrically opposed to each other, and they don't realize that. And by the way, sometimes Christians do that. Theologians do that. Pastors do that. All of us do that in some sense. And, of course, part of this life is having our mind renewed, right, being changed. The the Scriptures tell us to be changed by the renewing of our minds. Well, part of that is realizing there are places in our minds that we are doing some bad philosophy slash bad theology, and we need to rectify that. Now, every religion is founded on a creation story. Here's the second thing. Which creation story you believe most will tell you what worldview controls your thinking. You can be a Christian and have a very fractured worldview. You can be a Christian and be trying to weave in the creation story of atheism because you think it will make it more plausible to a dying world if you compromise your worldview with theirs. I'm here to tell you that's not the case. Okay, as a guy that works in the field, I've spent more than 10 years in in the field of science and science education. I've gotten to go and be a part of it even at the state level. I'm going to tell you right now, you compromising your worldview and deciding that you don't need to believe Genesis, you're going to adopt the Big Bang as much as you can, and you're going to weave your own theoretical pieces into it will not make your creation story more plausible to the unbeliever. An unbeliever is not an unbeliever because he doesn't have enough evidence. He doesn't need you to compromise your worldview with his so that he can then believe your worldview. It's not how it happens. An unbeliever is an unbeliever because he has a darkened heart. He needs Christ to touch his heart. Are you with me here? Okay. Which creation story you believe most will tell you which worldview controls your thinking. Part of the problem that we have in especially evangelical churches today is that we have tried to compromise our worldview as much as possible with atheism. We will hold to as much of their story as we can because we think it will make our story more plausible. I hope that by the end of today you are reconsidering that. Let's get some introductions and some uh, definitions out of the way. This is exegesis, drawing out the intended meaning when reading out of a selected text, especially a scripture. That's what we want to do as good theologians. 
as Christians who are consistent in our theology, we don't want to read the text and read our own notions into it. We want to read what the text means out of it. That means, as much as possible, we want to put our preconceived biases aside and get the selected uh, meaning out of the text. I've heard one philosopher say it this way. He says, anytime you're reading a text, the way that you've got to read that text is you have to read it in what context and what it would have meant to its original audience. I agree. Certainly, we all agree. By the way, that same philosopher does not believe Genesis 1. Why? Well, it doesn't have to mean that. That philosopher's name is William Lane Craig. I have a problem with his philosophy because I don't think he's very consistent. We want to do exegesis, and we want to certainly do that in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the Scriptures. I wrote my master's thesis over the historical Adam. The problem with you deciding that the first few chapters, usually the first 11 chapters of Genesis, are a different kind of narrative. They're not historical. They're mythological. You've got a real problem now. Is the fall of man mythological? Is the necessity of a savior mythological? Even Richard Dawkins has put it this way. He says, if all of that is myth, why in the world would any Christian need a literal savior to save them from a mythical sin and a mythical fall? By the way, that's also where he gets the notion that, hey, Jesus is just a myth. Jesus wasn't actually a real person. Why? He's being philosophically consistent with some Christians, at least in namesake, who have argued that same thing. Okay? We want to be good theologians. We want to draw out the intended meaning of the text. All right? Proverbs 30, 5 through 6 says this, Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Note this, Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you, and you be found to be a liar. God's word is true whether you like it or not. And I'm going to tell you something. There have been plenty of times in my life I have not liked that. Um, I had forgotten about this until a friend of mine reminded me about a year ago. Before I came to Christ, I was an agnostic. And I've always loved science, and I was a science student in college. And the first year I was in college... Uh, the, I think it was the FCA group, one of the on-campus ministry groups, invited a speaker in. He was a young earth creationist. And some of my friends, knowing I was lost, said, hey, you need to come hear this guy. You like science, you like this guy. And I went, so embarrassing to even say this, so shameful. I went to that speaker. Okay, I listened. I was in the back. And while he was speaking, he's talking about uh, the days of creation and how there's, you know, the earth is young and all this. I stood up and was yelling at him that he was wrong. No, it's not. The Earth's 4.57 billion years old. Everybody knows that. The universe is 13.7 billion years old. It's well-established scientific fact. <laughs> that was me that did that. God has a sense of humor. Now watch this, boy. <laughs> you think you're smart. Wait till I get a hold of you. So, God's word certainly does prove true. And if you add to it, you will be proven a liar. Let's get through this. All right, if you've got your Bible with you, and I hope you do, if not in paper form, at least in electronic form, don't you be on Amazon and tell people you're on your Bible app. If you are on Amazon, you should buy some book about repentance or something, I guess. Let's start at the beginning. That's a good place to start, right? There's a reason, by the way, that Genesis is the first book. 
the beginning, right? That's our, our daughter's name is Genesis Noel. We didn't even think about this when we named her. We just thought Noel was pretty. But Genesis Noel means literally the first child. <laughs> Way to go. That's symbolic. <laughs> Boy, those people are sharp. <laughs> What'd you name your first kid? We named her first kid. <laughs> We're real smart people. Oh, my. Anyway, here's what it says. Let's start at the beginning. Well, that didn't come out as well as I'd hoped. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light and that it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning, the first day. Day one. Earth, space, time, and light all come into existence. By the way, I don't know if you've thought about that before, but you have to have time come into existence as well. And I know this is going to sound really weird to you, but time is an entity in the sense that, or it is part of a continuum, it is not consistent, just like matter, in the sense that um, it can actually be manipulated. Time, we can literally uh, speed up or slow down time, the time that is experienced by the person in that place, uh, by one of two things. Either we can get them really close to a gravitational source or far away from a gravitational source, or we can speed up their travel. We get you close to the speed of light. Time will actually do something. It's called time dilation. It's very strange. And by the way, we have actually proven that empirically to be true. We have tested that. We have put atomic clocks on airplanes, and those airplanes fly at roughly 30,000 feet. So that means they're farther away from the gravitational center of the Earth than we are standing on the surface. And then we check the clocks against each other when the plane lands, and we will be off a little bit. Not much, but a little bit. And we've done it again and again and again and again. That's very strange. And that also means that there are different places in the universe that can actually experience different rates of time. I know that's weird, but I say all that to say this. God had to invent time and create time as well. Okay? He didn't just create matter. He also created time. He also created space. If he didn't have space, where would you put the matter? I mean, I, that sounds like a rhetorical trick, but it's really true. You've got to have space as well. All right. It's day one. Let's continue. Verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water. Uh, some of your Bibles might say a firmament. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. That's, that's kind of weird. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning. The second day, that is the atmosphere. We have water below and water above. Believe it or not, the most common thing in our atmosphere is water. Water vapor, of course, H2O. Uh, and we need that. We need the water in the atmosphere as well. It helps us in a lot of ways. Uh, it doesn't help us as much when we get really cold, does it? You know that here in Oklahoma or in, in southern Texas, when it gets down to 40 degrees, it feels like it's negative 10. That's because there's a lot of humidity in the air, right? And so that humidity is a very good, um, that, that water is very good at either cooling you off or heating you up. It absorbs a lot of energy. Now, that's day two, water and the atmosphere. The water's beneath and the water's above. Day three, 
let's see, starting at verse, where's that, 9. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Man, there's a lot going on there. A lot. Third day, we've got dry land, we've got ocean, we've got plants, and we've got a law, a biogenetic law that is now in place. And that is that each kind of living organism reproduces according to its kind. Notice it does not say according to its species. I hear this a lot. This is a straw man argument. Don't get trapped into it, Christian. I hear an atheist or secular thinker who will say, look, the Bible says that all species are, are of themselves and they only re- reproduce according to their species. That is not what the scriptures say. They say according to their kinds. And if you would like to know what a kind is, any third grader can tell you. Right? You can put a lion and a tiger and a house cat and an elephant all up on the screen and ask a third grader, hey, which one doesn't fit? They can tell you that elephant's not the same kind of animal as the others, right? The other three are, are cats. They're, they're, if you want to use the big terms, right? they're felines. And yet some of our Ph.D. college professors cannot tell you that oh, they're all the same. They all come from the same original ancestor. That's not true. And it's certainly not provable scientifically. It is certainly not observable. We've never seen a cat breed with another cat and produce a dog. That would be evolution, no doubt about it. We've never seen two dogs get together and produce an elephant. We've never seen two hummingbirds get together and produce a butterfly. That would certainly be evolution. Now, we have seen that in some of the fairy tales. I have literally seen that in textbooks. The first bird probably came from a reptilian egg. What? What? You think a couple of alligators got together and outhatched a cockatoo? I mean, all you need is a little LSD and a good imagination. You can see it. I can see it's happened. I can see it. Real time. No, that's not science. That's science fiction. So, let's go on. Uh, day four starts at verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse in the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons. And for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. That's a nice little footnote. Oh, yeah, by the way, he also made the stars. That's all we get? Like, there's a lot to be said here, right? Yeah. All you need to know about the stars right now, God made them. And he made them on this day. Made the stars also. And God set them in the expanse, or some of your versions will say in the firmament of the heavens, to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. 
Let's go on. Verse 20. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Flying creatures, by the way, I've heard this before. Well, um, God created birds on day five, but uh, when did bats come along? It's like a gotcha question. Well, I don't know. Do bats fly? Yeah, they're a flying creature then. Uh, some, here's, why, here's why that's asked, though. Some translations will say birds. That's acceptable. It's not, it's not very precise. It should be flying creatures. When did bats come along? Day five. When did birds come along? Day five. When did pterodactyls come along? Day five. Day, man! <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Dylan's like, that's my girl. Yeah, absolutely. They're a flying creature. Yes, day five. Well, I thought they were, they were here billions of years before people. If they were here and alive and dying millions of years before Adam was in the garden, you now have death before sin. God said death is part of the punishment for sin. I will not go so far as to say that's heretical. I think it's very inconsistent and very erroneous. But I think there are men in our theological past who would have condemned it that way. I think Paul would have said that. I think Paul would have said that's heresy. You don't have death before you have sin, period. And I've heard people answer this. Well, it really means human death. Oh, can you find that qualifier for me in the scriptures? No. Romans chapter 5 tells us death, period. Death, death, all death came through one man, namely Adam. Okay, moving on. Day 6, Genesis 1, 24. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. There's that phrase again. Ten times in chapter 1, we will see according to its kind. Living creatures always reproduce according to their kind. Would you like to know whether a living creature is related to another living creature? Question number one, can they reproduce? Okay, well, then they're not two different kinds of creatures. Here's the problem. Let me tell you one of the problems with Darwinism. One of the problems with Darwinism in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, they said, well, there's different races because men have evolved. People, people groups have evolved at different speeds and at different ways. And they actually had, I should have put them in here for you. I didn't. There are actually pictures that I have out of encyclopedia sex texts and textbooks of the day that tell us there is a hierarchy in the evolution of man. And the lowest, of course, was the Australoid, and next was the Negroid, and the Mongoloid, and of course, the most noble of them all was the Caucasoid. Why in the world would white guy Darwin say that? I wonder. No, those are all... The Bible told us exactly the opposite. The Acts tells us that God made all mankind from one blood. You don't get extra points for being white, black, Yellow, green, orange, or purple. I don't care what color your skin is. You are the same in the eyes of God. Every person has the same dignity. They have the same worth. 
Why? Because they were made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. They were made in the image of God. We should have known, Christians should have known, and some of them did, don't get me wrong. There were was, there was some great men of God in the late 1800s, early 1900s, who vehemently opposed Darwinism as it came out. The problem was there were other men, pastors, theologians, teachers in seminaries, who said, hey, let's just grab this Darwinism, because that's the scientific thinking of the day, and we'll weave it in to our theology. There were entire missionary organizations that stopped sending missions to non-white people. They stopped. There were missionary organizations that said we're no longer going to send missions to Africa because the Africans, they're so lowly evolved, we don't even know if they have souls. That is not just heresy. That is gross error, and it's damnable. And yet, why did it happen? Because Christians were willing to compromise their worldview to fit in new science. That is not how theology is done. Now listen, I'm not saying that the Word of God is a a science textbook. I'm glad it's not, because science textbooks get updated every few years. Here in Oklahoma, it takes us a few years to be able to afford the new updates, but they do get updated. And yet the Word of God remains steadfast. Every Word of God proves true. And a hundred years on the other side of that thinking, we would look back and we would condemn that. Do you know what? There were Southern Baptist preachers that did that. That hurts me because I'm very SBC. But that's true. There were Southern Baptist preachers who did that. Why? Well, we're just going to fit our theology to the science of the day. Okay, You're going to be proved a liar then. Because God's word proves true, period. Back to this before I... My blood pressure too worked up. God said, let, each, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image in our image. I have had conversations before with um, Messianic Jews and people who were not Messianic, but they were basically, in their minds, they are a Jewish Christian by um, conviction. What they mean by that is we should follow you know, the Jewish scriptures. Well, one of the conversations that came up was, well, the Trinity, that's a New Testament doctrine. That's a misunderstanding of the Old Testament text. And you can take them right back to Genesis and say, really? Please tell me how you interpret the word our. That's plural. We see the first mention of the Trinity right here in chapter 1. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them. In case you were wondering, just in case you were wondering if there is any difference in the dignity or personhood of the two sexes, I present to you evidence one. No, obviously. Men and women may have different roles in God's plan of redemption, but they certainly do not have a different value or a different worth or a different personhood 
And any argument to the contrary is nonsense. It certainly doesn't come from the Scriptures. And God blessed them, verse 28. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Full stop. Period. Here's the argument. You actually believe God created man and dinosaurs as contemporaries. Yes. Kind of stupid, are you? Those dinosaurs would have eaten him, people. You missed that text, didn't you? Let's try that again. To every beast of the earth, every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. They didn't have to worry about it. Why? There was no predation. There weren't predators in the garden. Okay? And by the way, the animals that you see on the earth today are not necessarily the animals that were there in the garden. What you see today has undergone 6,000 years of change and morphing and natural selection, and it's not the same as, as was there. Are you telling me rattlesnakes didn't eat mice? I don't know that there were rattlesnakes in the garden. If there were, they certainly did not. By the way, there are a lot of parasitic and predatory animals today where only one gender is that. For example, um, mosquitoes. Only female mosquitoes are predatory or parasitic. They're the only ones that suck blood. And they need the blood because they need the iron and the protein for their eggs. What do male mosquitoes live on? Uh, they live on the nectar of plants. How weird. It's as if there's a throwback there. You understand where I'm going with that? Yes, originally, all things ate plants. The creatures were not predatory. There was not bloodshed yet. You know why there was not bloodshed yet? There was no sin. There was no death yet. There was no sin until, chapter 3, until Adam fell. The fall of man did not just affect you and me, my friends. It affected everything. And I'm going to tell you something. Sin affects everything. Some of the times we get involved in things that we know are sinful, and you know why we do that? Because we don't understand how great the effect of sin is. We've been deceived by it. How do people get trapped into secret sins, in, in pornography, or, or into um, a, a secret drug addiction, or, or alcoholism that they're trying to keep from their family. How do you get into that? Because they don't realize when they get into it how wide-ranging the effect of sin really is. Sin is an incredibly powerful, corruptive force. Not just, by the way, to all the things that you can see, but it's corruptive to the things you can't see, too. You can't see your soul. And yet sin's corruptive to it. It's corruptive. It, was, it's, it has been corruptive to the nature not just of man but of animals. There are animals today that cannot survive without killing and eating other animals. That was not so in the garden. And frankly, I'm looking forward to that day. Let's go on. 
I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. 31, God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. I'm going to pick up the next three verses of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right. (coughs) Christian, that is your creation story. If you're a Christian, I just read to you your creation story. The story that your worldview is built on is right there. And by the way, if that's not true, if there were billions of years before the creation of man, Jesus was wrong. Jesus said, have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? If there are 13 and a half billion years before man was made, uh, he wasn't made in the beginning. He was made pretty much toward the end. And if there are 13 billion years, if there were billions of years of death, well, it's not really true, billions of years, though, of death and bloodshed, then Death didn't come through sin, and corruption of the world didn't come through sin. And what do you say when, when someone is, that you know or love is dying of cancer? What do you say when somebody's 56-year-old dad that they just really got to know dies of an unexpected stroke, like mine did a few years ago? What do you say to that if you believe that death and destruction and decay was just always part of the created order? Sorry, dude, that's just the way God does it. Get used to it. Is that what you say? No, death is an intrusion. Death is an intrusion upon the created order. It is an enemy. In fact, it's even called, literally called an enemy. It's called the last enemy that Christ will swallow up, will be death. Death is an enemy. And we need to see it as that. And if we will stick to our creation story, we will see it as that. But when we start trying to compromise our creation story... With the secular creation story, you're going to get some very aberrant views. Most people do that without realizing it's going to have an impact. They think it this way. They don't think it will impact their worldview. Well, I can compromise these two because it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter? (laughs) You arrogant fool. You think God's word really doesn't matter? Well, yeah, that part. Oh, you're the one who gets to judge what parts of the Bible matter and don't, huh? You're a much better judge of that than God, I'm sure. Forgive me for my sarcasm. Probably need to calm down a little bit on that. I was that guy. I've been that guy. Don't be that guy. There are two competing creation stories in our culture. Two of them. Two major ones. There's lots of other creation stories, but these are the major ones. And the question is this. It's it's an epistemological question. That's a big philosophic word that basically says, what's your ultimate authority? Here's how it works. There's a principle in epistemology that says this. It is basically the rule, it is the rule, the the ruling principle of epistemology. Whatever your largest authority, whatever the biggest authority, the major authority is in your mind, gets to modify the others, okay? If the word of God is your ultimate authority, like you say it is, I mean, every Christian, if I ask them that, they'll say that. What's your ultimate authority? Well, it's just the Bible. Oh, really, it is. Yeah, they'll say that because they know that's the right answer to give in Sunday school, right? The question is, do you live that out? Do you even live it out in your mind, in your thinking? 
If God's word is your ultimate authority, then here's what you'll do. You will utilize God's word to modify or correct the other ones. Okay? Here's some other author- epistemological authorities, philosophical authorities. Your heart, your feelings, we call that intuition. Right? Well, how do you know this is right? I just feel it inside. Well, if, if a person is living that kind of epistemology out, they can see what the word of God says and they can go, well, I like that, but in this case, though, I just know differently because I really feel it in my soul. I feel it in my heart. I've got to follow my heart. That's someone who's living out an intuition as an epistemology. Or sometimes we have people that are empiricists. That is, we would say science, those things I can see, touch, taste. That's not even true. Empiricists don't even believe that. But theoretically, it would be the, the realm of science is the ultimate in authority. Whatever the scientific consensus of the day is, that's what we ought to follow. Most Christians, or most people at least that show up to church on Sundays today, are empiricists in their thinking. They don't realize that, but they are. And so when they come to Genesis, they go, well, I know it says this, but the consensus of modern science says this, and therefore modern science must be right, and we need to modify the other to fit it. If that is your thinking, you do not have the Bible as your final authority or your ultimate authority. You do not have what we call a revelational epistemology. You are not founded on God's word in your thinking. You may very well be born again. Don't get me wrong, okay? I mean, God may have pulled you out and saved you from the culture, but you've got a lot of the culture inside you that now needs to be pulled out. Does that make sense? Which one of them gets modified and which one's untouchable? Whichever one gets modified by the other, that is the lesser of the two authorities. Whichever one is untouchable, untouchable or unassailable, that is your ultimate authority. When you hear someone saying, well, we need to modify our Christian beliefs to fit modern scientific consensus, you've got a real problem on your hand. And by the way, I've met a lot of people like that. Curiously, typically they don't have much science training, but they're certain every scientist has all the answers. And then when someone that does have science training comes along and goes, they don't got the answers, they go, I don't know if you really understand science. I have literally had that said to me. Do you really understand science? I, I don't know. I've got a degree in it. The State Department thinks I do. How much science training have you had? Well, I had a three-hour course one time. You are an expert, aren't you? Why is it that you would take your... Here's what they forget. They forget that scientists are like every other person, and if they're not regenerate, their thinking is not regenerate. So when an unregenerate scientist says, hey, you can't trust the Bible, they think somehow, well, this person's not just like one of those unsaved people. I mean, he's a scientist, and they're unbiased. I should, I should take what he said. He knows a lot. He's a smart guy. PhD, got a lot of letters, a lot of letters after his name. I mean, he's a smart guy. Yeah, no doubt. He's a smart guy. I, I agree with you. I don't think he's smarter than the creator of the world. Call me crazy. Well, I've got to take that. I've got to take what he says and just somehow fit it in. No, you don't. You stand up and give an apologetic. That is a defense. Defend your faith. Don't compromise it. Even if you don't know the answer, you can say, look, I don't really know the answer to that, but I know this. God's word is true, and what you've just said is not. And I may have to go look for the answer, and I may have to call, you know, phone a friend, or I may have to go find something online, but I don't believe what you just told me. Well, I'm a scientist. You've got to believe me. I don't care who you are. That was me at one time, by the way. Which, word, which one gets modified? Which one's unassailable? Here are positions that flow out of that epistemology. It's an errant epistemology. 
theistic evolution, the gap theory, the framework hypothesis, progressive creation. I, I hate that term. It sounds, it sounds so good, but it's basically a theistic evolution position. Oh, I believe that God created through a Darwinistic process over billions of years. Okay, well, then you believe in Darwinism, dude. Just have the guts to say what you believe. Well, yes, I believe it was Dar- Darwinistic, but God directed the process. Okay. Where'd you get that at? You found that in God's word? He said that somewhere in Genesis. Hey, there's going to be some evolution, and I'm directing the process. Well, no, but modern science, modern science has confirmed this. Okay, well, if you're going to take your cues from modern science, Mr. Epistemologist, Mr. Empiricist, can I tell you what modern science says about a man being born of a virgin? Would you like me to tell you what modern science says about a man rising from the dead after three days? How far are you going to follow this fallacy? You cannot be a consistent Christian and believe that. You cannot. You cannot be a consistent Christian and believe that we're going to take all of our cues from empiricism, from the scientific consensus of the day. Why? Because the vast majority of those scientists who get to make that consensus are unregenerate unbelievers whose minds and hearts are darkened and they are not going to capitulate to God's word. And it doesn't matter how much evidence you give them, they will not capitulate to God's word. You're going to take your cues from that? Don't take your cues from that. Let me show you these two competing ideologies. 15 billion years. This is, by the way, usually I have to tell people this is what the you know, evolutionary scenario says because they believe it. They just don't know what it is. It's kind of a sad position to be in. I believe it. Well, what does it say? Well, I'm not really sure of all the details, but I believe it. Okay. About 13.7 billion years ago, we say 15s. It's you know, a little easier number. But 13.7 billion years ago, you had the Big Bang, right? That's the going rate. That's... It's the going theory of the day. Ten billion years ago, basically, you had the formation of stars. Five billion years ago, the sun. Four and a half billion years ago, you had a molten earth. 4.56, 4.57, somewhere in there. You know, give or take a few hundred million years. About 3.8 billion years ago, you had the formation of seas and the waters. And it's going to sound crazy, but, you know, lightning struck the waters and created life. I love when I hear someone who's secular say, I can't be a Christian because you guys believe in miracles. And I go, really? You believe that lightning struck a sea and caused things to live eventually. That's called abiogenesis. You're going to tell me that's not miraculous? Of course you believe in miracles. Every religion has miracles, even if it's only the miracle of creation. Secularists must believe in miracles. They just won't call it that. They hate that term, so they'll say, well, we had an aberration. Well, temporarily, the laws of physics were suspended because it was, of course, you know, very early on in the Big Bang. The universe is very molten and hot. Okay. So you do believe in miracles. Well, not miracles. It's totally a naturally processed. Creation is not natural. Okay? It's not. It's not any way you slice it. Here's yours. Here's your uh, worldview right here. Here's your creation story, right? Water covered the earth. This is day one. Dry land and plants. Sun, moon, and stars. Sea and flying creatures. Land, animals, and man. Here's the question that I have for you. In your worldview, which one of these do you line up more with? Because that's going to tell you which worldview is actually controlling your thinking. And it's why you will reject certain... If you believe this, there are certain tenets of our faith, of Christianity, that you will reject necessarily because you've bought into another worldview. You don't realize that you're holding in your head two competing worldviews. 
Uh, by the way, if you pin your creation story and your worldview to the Big Bang, what are you going to do when science throws out the Big Bang? There is already serious talk about that in scientific circles. Here's Scientific America from, I think, 2005. Uh, quantum gaps in the Big Bang Theory. Why our best explanation of how the universe evolved must be fixed or replaced. There is a real push right now in cosmology, in astronomy, um, in certain realms and fields of science to get rid of the Big Bang and replace it with something more like steady state. So you pin your worldview as a Christian to the Big Bang. What are you going to do when they throw that out? You can't throw it out. It's good. Okay. I got news for you, Christian. Eventually, anything that smells like could be a creator will be, will be thrown out. It will be thrown out by the secular majority. The guys that get to set the, quote, scientific consensus, that's how consensus works. Consensus means the popular vote is right. And by the way, that's a logical fallacy in and of itself. But we do science on it today. Bad idea. Well, the vast majority of scientists believe this. Oh, that makes it real then. The vast majority of scientists a few hundred years ago also believed a five-pound weight would fall five times faster than a one-pound weight. Did that make it true? The vast majority of scientists a hundred years ago thought that all different human races evolved separately. And there was higher and lower races. Does that make it true? That is a, you can challenge them right off the bat with that. And you should. Okay. Here's what it always comes down to. Here's what it always comes down to. But, preacher, does day really mean day? I mean, when we read through Genesis, the word for day, yom, doesn't necessarily mean day. I mean, yom can mean something other than a day, doesn't it? Yeah, that is true. Yes, it can mean something other than a normal, ordinary day. But it can also mean a normal, ordinary day. And it's the only Hebrew word that has that distinction. Other words that you would use in there do necessarily mean something else. Yom can mean day, and it can also mean just like our English word day. Does day always mean day? No. You know, back in the day, I had a car, right? Well, what does that mean? Does that mean you only had a car for a day? No. Back in a certain period of time, you had a car, right? Uh, Ken Ham says it this way, and I hate to steal it from him, but he says, back in my father's day, it took uh, 10 days to drive across the Australian outback if you were only driving during the day. Well, there's the word day having three separate nuanced meanings. And the, the word in English has de- separate nuanced meanings just as well. And it is true that um, yom could mean something. Yom is the Hebrew word for day that we find in Genesis 1. Yom could mean something other than day. Well, how would we find out what that word means? How do you find out what any word means in any language whatsoever? Context, man. I love it when you do that. Yeah, absolutely, Context. Context always rules language. It rules word usage. It, it rules meaning. Context always determines meaning, period. Why is it everybody knows what yom means when we're reading about Jericho? You ever had somebody question that? Like, hey, it was really seven days. Or it was like 7,000 years. They watch around the city seven million. I mean, how, how long was it really? Do we really know? Why is it that nobody ever questions how long Jonah was in the whale? I mean, was he in there for three days? Was it 3,000 years? Maybe it was millions of years. It was an undisclosed, undisclosed you know, portion of time. Those are all the same word. 
Why is it that it's only Genesis 1 we cannot figure out what Yom means? Why is it? Because there are two competing worldviews and we desperately want to compromise with the world's worldview. That's sad, but it's true. So let's do this. This is, this is what Yom could mean. It's a lot of definitions. Could mean a day. Could mean a 24-hour, just the light portion of a day. Hey, here's the day and there's the night. Right? It could mean a lot of different things. How do we figure out what it means in Genesis 1? Here's what we do. Let me give you a hermeneutical principle. If you have a passage and you do not know what the word in that passage means, you take that passage, set it aside, pretend it doesn't exist, go find that word in other places, in other contexts, see what it means. All right, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to just shave Genesis 1 off. By the way, if God was trying to say that the day was a figurative piece of time, there are a lot of other Hebrew words he could have used, but he didn't. He used the one that has... In its semantic range, an actual ordinary day. Let's shave Genesis 1 off, okay? Let's pretend we don't know what it means. Let's take the contextual markers that are found in Genesis 1. Let's go apply them everywhere else in the scriptures and find out what Yom means when it has the same contextual markers as Genesis 1. Here's some of the things we can do. Anytime we find Yom with an ordinal number, anybody know what an ordinal number is? Instead of saying one, you say first. Right? It's, it's a number that's used in a list. So this is not day one. This is the first day, second day, third day. Right? I'm third in line. That's an ordinal number. Every time that we find Yom coupled with an ordinal number, 410 times outside of Genesis 1, every time without exception, it always means an ordinary day. Okay? Every time we find the terms evening and morning together with Yom outside of Genesis 1, 38 times, it always means an ordinary day. Every time we, uh, oh, without day, I'm sorry. Every time we find it without day, it still means ordinary day. Every time we find it with day, it means ordinary day. 38 times for one, 23 times for the other. How about day and night? If we find day and night by themselves outside of Genesis 1, 52 times in the Old Testament, always, without exception, it means ordinary day. So there are some contextual markers that we find in Genesis 1. I wonder this, why in the world did God have to put so many of them in Genesis 1? Well, he's a sovereign God, and he knew we would be here today. He knew we'd be living in a culture that objected. He knew he'd have to overqualify this thing because, well, to be real, real honest, we're a little dense sometimes. We're not nearly as smart as we think we are, although we like to think that we're pretty smart. So here's the verses, right? Night, evening, morning, ordinal number, day. You know, okay, look, uh, just in case you're wondering whether this is an ordinary day, here you go. And in case you didn't catch the first one, here's another one. And in case you didn't catch that, here's the third. And in case you're really dense and you're still not catching it, let me give you an ordinal number. Make sure you know. Evening, morning, number, day. Uh-huh. Evening, morning, ordinal number, day. Evening, morning, ordinal number, day. Even, I'm seeing a pattern. I'm starting to get a pattern that is emerging. I think we can tell what day means in Genesis 1. It's pretty easy. If we're doing good exegesis... You're going to come to no other conclusion than Yom means day. The reason that we don't want to agree with that is because we think if we stand up in our culture and say that, we're going to be mocked and scoffed. Guess what? You will be. But that doesn't make it any less true. You're going to be mocked and scoffed if you stand up in our culture and tell them that a man who was fully God and fully man 
died a death on a cross and three days later rose again, they will think that's foolish too. Not because it's bad science, but because they have a darkened heart. It doesn't make it any less true. And it does not mean that you're free willy-nilly to throw it away and not talk about it. Our job is still to preach the truth. God's in the, in the business of changing hearts. We're, we should be in the business of speaking truth and defending it. That's our job. How do you get long ages, millions of years, the framework hypothesis? You eisegete that. You import that into the text because you want it to be true before you start reading, and therefore you read it in. That is, by definition, eisegesis. That's poor theology. That's how you get aberrant doctrines. Let me give you some quotes from a language expert, Hebrew language expert. As far as I know, there's no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament in any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to their readers the idea that creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. The figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition, a chronology from the beginning of the world up to later stages, and see that Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and extinguishing all human and animal life except for those in the ark. Here's what he's saying. By the way, that's James Barr. He's a Hebrew scholar. He's saying, we know the Hebrew was written to convey that idea. We, not, we may not believe that that idea is correct, but there is certainly no doubt that that is what the Hebrew is written to convey. Now, we have guys standing up today and, of course, opposing that. Most of them in seminaries. Now, they are vehemently opposed to that where they'll say, no, you can't believe that. You need to believe in good science, which means compromise your worldview with that of the secular world. Uh, how about Dr. James Boyce? You may have heard of him before. Kind of a well-known guy. He does not believe, by the way, in that creation story. He does not believe in a six-day creation, or did not believe. But he said this. We have to admit here, the exegetical basis of their argument is strong. In other words, Boyce says this. Yeah, that's what the Hebrew actually seems to be saying, but I don't agree. Okay, fine. I feel like the argument's over. I don't care whether you agree or not. What does the Hebrew say? Here is a world-class scholar who says, yeah, the Hebrew says that, but we don't believe it. Why don't we believe it? Well, data from various disciplines, meaning science, scientific consensus, points to a very old earth and an even older universe. In other words, yep, that's what the Hebrew says, but modern science says this, and we should therefore reinterpret Genesis to accommodate modern scientific consensus. That is poor theology, my friend, and I don't care whether your last name's Boyce or not. It's still poor theology. Pun, same thing, straightforward understanding of the Genesis record without regard to all the hermeneutical considerations suggested by science. Oh, modern science gets to be a hermeneutical consideration. Should we read that into Romans, sir? Maybe Paul didn't know that dead men don't rise. Is that a hermeneutical consideration? The straightforward understanding of the Genesis record is that God created heaven and earth in six solar days. There's all of these scholars saying the same thing. Yep, that's what Genesis seems to say, but we're not going to believe it because the scientists, and we know scientists are smart, and they're unbiased, you know, just like any unregenerate human. Obviously, they couldn't be wrong about this. There's lots of them saying it. They couldn't be wrong yeah, because scientists, of course, have never been wrong in the past. Biblically, again, biblically we find the young earth approach of six 24-hour days and the catastrophic universal flood to make the most sense. Over and over and over, that's what we find. Here's what Martin Luther says. The days of creation were ordinary days in length. 
We must understand that these days were actual days, contrary to the opinion of the Holy Fathers. A lot of the guys in the past, um, some of the early fathers would say, well, God says he created in six days, but it wouldn't take God six days to create. He actually did it in an instant, but he just said six days. Weird. We've got the opposite going on today, don't we? Here's what Martin Luther was saying. Look, dude, here's what the text says. And whether you like it or not, that's what the text says. Period. Let me give you some other ones, and I'll close with these. Um, we believe in a confession around here, right? We believe in this one right here, 1689. The London Baptist Confession, which basically set out what it meant to be a Baptist. One of the earliest confessions, or the earliest, I think, was 1644. But this was the, the second one, so the second London Baptist Confession. This is what we use. We ascribe to it here at... Sovereign Grace Bible Church. Here's some other ones, even earlier ones. The Irish Articles of Religion. In the beginning of time, when no creature had any being, God by his word alone in the space of six days created all things. Okay, 1615. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. In the beginning, it pleased God to create or make the world, all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. How about the London Baptist Confession? Exact same wording. How about the Philadelphia Baptist Confession? Exact same wording. Exact same wording. That's 1742. Notice this. It's going a long time. Fulton Confession of Faith, 1900. Space of six days and all very good. Exact same wording. Baptist Bible Union Articles of Faith, 1923. Basically same wording. We believe in the Genesis account of creation and that is, it is to be accepted literally, not allegorically or figuratively. Now, question. What happened between then and now? You will notice something if you read... The Baptist faith and message today. There's no mention of creation at all whatsoever. Why is that? Well, it's just too divisive, brother. It's too contentious. You know, people don't agree on that, so we're just not putting it in there. Okay. okay. Is that how we do theology? If enough people don't agree, we don't talk about it? I've got news. We're going to be doing a lot of compromising then soon. <clears throat> no. Look, God said it, and that settles it. It doesn't matter whether we believe it or not. God was the one that was there. He was the one that inspired that writing. He was the one who literally face-to-face told Moses. Uh, How do you get that wrong? This literally came from the mouth of God. And basically what it comes down to is this. Will you believe God's word, or do you believe man's word is more authoritative? Well, those scientists, they're always right. Really? Well, yeah, you can't believe the Bible just because the Bible says it's true. Oh, really? Well, then can you believe science because scientists say it's true? Yeah, there's going to be some circle in here somewhere. What it's going to come down to is this. Will you believe God's word or will you believe man's word? And that's it. That's what happened in the garden too, by the way. Chapter 3, right? Why do we have the fall? Because we didn't believe God's word. Satan comes along and says, did he really say that? you really believe that? Look. He's trying to keep this good thing from you, right? Have a bite. And for the first time in the history of history, we decided to believe the lie. What was the lie? The lie was that God didn't mean what he said. That is the lie. And by the way, Romans chapter 1 says that's what uh, people who are unbelievers buy into. They believe the lie. What's the lie? God didn't really mean what he said. Yeah, I meant it. It's true, whether we like it or not. Okay, let's, um, let's pray, and then we're going to move into our communion. Father, 
thank you for your word. Forgive me, Lord, if I've delivered it with more venom than necessary. Give us conviction, Lord. Make us a people of conviction that we know that your word is true and that we're willing to stand on it, whatever that means, even if it means we're mocked or that we're scoffed or that people make fun of us for our beliefs, that, God, we're willing to stand on those beliefs and even more so that we're willing to go to battle for them. We're willing to give an apologetic to defend the truth of your, of your word. I thank you for these people, Lord. I ask you to be with us today, that you would um, seal your truth in our hearts, that you would convict us where our worldview errs. Convict me, Lord, and show me where my worldview errs. Convict us and show us where our worldview errs and show us how we can come into conformity with your word. For the glory of God, for the kingdom, and the King, Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.